encourage them as they move out from this place and into that next uh, phase of their life. I was going through some things in my office just recently, and I encountered a note from a lady named Velma Warner. Uh, Velma Warner is not alive today, uh, but she was a woman who would write me cards and letters during my high school years. Uh, She was a part of the church that I went to uh, and even sent me a graduation card that really spurred me on uh, toward maturity, toward faith and godliness, and and ultimately even toward ministry as she identified some things uh, in me that I never would have identified uh, in myself. So if the Lord leads you to do that, I think that's a a tremendous ministry and just want to give you that encouragement. I do feel like I've been basking in the beauty of last Sunday's service for like seven days. You know, if you weren't here last week, a lot of really good things happened. Uh, We moved back into our remodeled sanctuary, and believe it or not, that was actually the low light of the day. Uh, We baptized five young people. Three of them were my own kids, so that brought me and Mandy a great deal of joy. Uh, There was the dedication of like six or seven babies. We committed each of their parents, and at the same time, we committed ourselves as a church to, to see these little ones encounter the gospel again and again as they grow into maturity. Uh, so that's, a, that's high on the list of things to celebrate. But as I prepared for my message this week, a more sobering thought hit me within that. So alongside these blessings, these baptisms, and these dedications of those babies, there's a, a very real and very serious fear about raising kids in a world like ours, isn't there? Young parents that are having babies, they, they, they seek a, or they see a very bleak future for their kids. Parents are wondering what kind of country their children are going to be living in, given our world today. What are things really going to look like in 10 years or 20 years or, or 50 years? There are even people who are wondering whether they should have children at all. There's simply a lot of fear. The weight of our world is very heavy. I was talking to a physician friend of mine recently, and he told me that one of the medications that he's prescribing more and more all the time is anti-anxiety medication. I know many of you who take it, it's not a condemnation of that. People in our day are just paralyzed by anxiety, and they are needing a prescription to manage it. But it does make sense at some level because never in the history of the world has there been a people exposed to as much trouble as we are exposed to today. Now, there's always been trouble. The book of Job says man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Jesus himself said in the world, in this world, you will have trouble. There's there's always been trouble. Our current age is not special in that we have trouble and the previous ages didn't. But there is this reality. Man has never had to deal with so much trouble in real time as we have to deal with in this day and age. Here's what I mean by that. We live in what some call a global society and what makes us global is not only our mobility, but more than that, it's our immediate access to information. So in this global, media-saturated information age that we live in, the troubles of the entire planet are being brought to our attention every moment, all the time, really down to the minutest detail. So where it used to be that the trouble you knew was the trouble that you yourself experienced, or the trouble you knew was the trouble you saw, or the trouble you knew was the trouble that someone told you about, 
All that was very digestible at some level. But now, in today's society, we encounter all the troubles of the whole world. So everywhere there is war, and everywhere there is corruption, and everywhere there is starvation, every calamity, great and small, we don't just read about it, we often see it with our own eyes. And that can be more than the heart is able to bear. It intimidates, and it frightens, and it causes some level of anxiety. Think about it. If you're consuming any amount of media, your heart and mind is confronted with, with natural disasters from every corner of the globe. Not only that, you're constantly being warned about some new kind of, of flu or some new kind of virus or some radical strain of disease that is spreading rapidly and is on our doorstep. We have social threats coming at us all the time. Ideologies that are destroying the things that we hold precious and valuable. Then there's just general evil. General evil seems to be escalating. Evil men get worse and and worse. Corruption and moral perversion and crime and terrorism. And we're exposed to all of it all the time. We do not live on a happy planet. And we manage to see a great deal of its unhappiness. And what's really troubling is it shows no sign of stopping. We, in this room, we probably anticipate more trouble. We anticipate worse calamity. We expect more violence and and greater disaster. And so many of you are anxious. You have fear. And then there's also this new kind of trouble for us. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, there's a new angle on trouble. I'm talking, of course, about persecution. Persecution has been known in many parts of the world nonstop for centuries, but for us in the United States, we've had sort of this 300-year reprieve from religious persecution. But now, now I believe true Christianity and the true gospel is at the top of the list of offenses in our society. And those you and I, those who hold convictionally to these beliefs, I think we are seen as public enemy number one. We value life. We value marriage in a certain traditional context. We are clear on gender issues, just general human decency. We have a certain level of respectability. So the question for us in this day is, how do we respond? Not just to trouble in general, but how do we respond when that trouble becomes persecution? Because I think it's coming. In John 15, in the upper room, Jesus basically told his disciples, they hated me, they'll hate you. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. He even said in the 16th chapter of John, they'll arrest you. They're going to take you to court. They'll even take your life. That's how it's going to be, Jesus said. So with those words, to understand how to deal with this kind of trouble, turn, if you haven't already, to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is the subject matter in our text this morning, beginning in verse 13, and I'll read to verse 17. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter writes these words. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word. So just by way of outline, we now embark on the third and final section of this epistle. So the first section comprised of chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10. And what that section laid out was God's grace in salvation. So you remember how Peter explained the past and present and future tense of salvation. Remember how he reminded these believers of of their status as children of God, that they were a people born again to a living hope. All of that is Peter explaining God's grace in salvation. I hope you took much of that material to heart because it is rich in joy-giving. The second section was chapter 2, verse verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 12. And what that outlined was God's grace in submission. We talked about submission for about a month, submission to government, submission in the workplace, submission in marriage. So, So the three institutions that are basic fixtures in every society, government and vocation and marriage, Peter exhorts the believer toward submission in each of those areas, kind of shows them, tells them what submission looks like and what its benefits are. That was God's grace in submission. And so now the section we begin today, chapter 3, verse 13, through the end of the book, through the end of chapter 5, is God's grace in suffering. And suffering has shadowed much of the book already, but it now it now will become the highlight of Peter's message to these exiled believers in Jesus Christ. Remember his audience. It's these believers in the northern part of Asia Minor, in Bithynia and Cappadocia, and and these areas in which they're a part of the Roman Empire, but their influence on society is, is very, very weak. And because of what they value, because of their relationship with Christ, they are completely out of step with the culture around them. So today we'll look at this passage in two primary sections. First, we have the possibility of suffering. We'll see that at the start of the passage, and then we'll have some instructions on suffering from verses 14 through 17. And there we'll see that Peter gives us five encouragements on how to suffer well. If we're going to enter into suffering, if we're going to encounter persecution, we want to know how to get through that in a way that honors the Lord. So the possibilities. So even though verse 13 begins, as I just said, the next larger section, the concluding section to Peter's epistle, it's also connected, closely connected to the preceding verses. It flows directly out of verse 12. You remember from last week, verse 12 ends with a thought about how God will surely punish those who do evil. Peter quotes from Psalm 34. He says, The Lord's face is against those who do evil. 
And so out of that thought, he uses the transitional word in verse 13, now. It could just as easily say, therefore. And what Peter's saying is, since God is going to punish those who set themselves to do evil, who is going to harm those who do good? God won't harm those who do good. That's Peter's primary implication. God's not going to punish those who do good. And, and under normal, normal sort of circumstances, no other person's going to harm them either. Peter's saying people who do good, they don't typically or frequently find themselves in positions where, where evil is coming against them, where persecution is coming down on them. You know, when you're not repaying evil for evil, when your speech is not slandering other people, when you choose to be honest, when you choose to seek peace, when you consistently seek ways to be a blessing to others, typically that kind of person is not under much condemnation from those around him. So if God's grace fuels you to live the kind of life that's described in verses 8 through 12, the life that we looked at last week, you may seem really strange in the world's eyes, like you're a different guy, but you will generally be kept from evil at the hands of others. However, though the principle may generally be true most of the time and in most situations, Peter knows that there are exceptions. Peter knows that the lifestyle that typically keeps believers preserved and, and safe and somewhat respected may at some point and in some places, it may endanger them. It may bring persecution, which is why in verse 14, he posits that there remains this possibility that you're going to suffer for righteousness sake. There he says, but even if you should suffer, but even if, the old English word for that phrase would be perchance. Meaning, even if you exemplify verses 8 through 12, there's a chance that you could get persecuted anyway. In fact, it seems we have a record of someone who did nothing but good. He actually lived perfectly and still suffered. Who would that be? Jesus Christ himself. The people around him called him a malefactor, an evildoer. He's the ultimate example of one who suffered for righteousness' sake. Go to chapter 2, verse 21 of, of, of this same epistle. Peter writes, you've been called for this purpose. What purpose? You've been called for the purpose of suffering, he's saying. I'm talking about suffering, guys. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who when he suffered committed no sin, nor deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously or justly. Christ is the example for believers who may be suffering for righteousness. Suffering for righteousness can happen. How do we know it can happen? Because Jesus. Jesus' righteousness was ultimate, yet he suffered. And his suffering and bearing God's wrath for our sin was ultimate, yet his ultimate suffering. And in that suffering, he entrusted himself to God. So for us to join in the suffering of Christ is to also entrust ourselves to God as well. Even in suffering and in persecution and in trouble, we can trust God who cares for us, who cares for his own. So the real possibility 
is that you may suffer for righteousness sake. But then again, you may not. Because typically people don't harm those who are committed to doing good. These are not promises here necessarily, but we do have an example if we look to what happened to Christ. And so therefore we shouldn't be surprised if it happens to us. So now the instruction to those who find themselves suffering for the sake of righteousness, or even, even for those who just find themselves suffering in general. Five ways to faithfully respond to trouble. First, you recognize that you're blessed. Look at the middle of verse 14. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And I need to clarify real quick, this is not hashtag blessed we're talking about here. Those of you into social media, and you go on vacation, and you hashtag blessed, or you get a new car, or something really good happens to you, or your husband sends you flowers, whatever, this is not hashtag blessed. To say you're blessed as it relates to this text, it doesn't mean you're happy. The Bible does not teach that you have to be happy with suffering and persecution. But it does say that you can be blessed by it. And so blessed here means highly privileged. That's really what it means. The person who suffers for righteousness' sake is highly privileged. You are blessed because you have been privileged to suffer for the sake of Christ who suffered for you. In addition, there is more, not just identifying with Christ's suffering. In addition, you're going to be blessed in eternity because you're going to receive a reward for the suffering that you endured. And you're like, ooh, Jay, where'd you get, you know, where'd you pull that from? You didn't pull it from this text. How'd you get there? Well, it's one of the earliest things we learned from Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 10. Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. And then he adds this wonderful statement. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, you are privileged to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Because you are promised an eternal reward. And you've just been added to a really elite group of people, the prophets who suffered before you for many of the same reasons. You're blessed when you come under persecution. Persecution is a mark of blessing on your life. You can also consider yourself blessed because God uses that kind of unfair treatment to, to strengthen you, to actually make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we need to reorder the inventory of our thinking a little bit, don't we? Because we think suffering and trials, we, we, we think that, that that robs us of joy, that that robs us of some kind of completeness in our, li in our life. We think troubles take from us. It's not true. 
God uses trouble to produce something in us, something that we could not produce on our own. James calls it steadfastness. It means endurance. And it is a key component in God's perfecting work in us. Trials and sufferings and persecutions, they don't hold us back and prevent our endurance. They actually produce it. They're probably the only thing that really does produce it in a meaningful, long-standing way, which is to say, if you want a more durable faith, a more enduring relationship with God, you know where that comes from? It comes from suffering. It comes from trouble. It comes from persecution. I'm reminded of the Chinese missionaries who, when visited by the American pastor, they were discussing prayer requests, telling each other what each of them was going to be praying for in the months ahead. And the, and the American pastor shared with the Chinese church what he was going to be praying for for them, for protection, for blessing, for numerical growth. And the Chinese church shared with the pastor what they would be praying for his church which was persecution because they very clearly understood its positive effects that it would produce endurance and, 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 and perfection and completeness. The Scottish hymn writer Horatius Bonar said, how fast we learn in a day of sorrow. It is as if affliction awoke our powers and lent them new quickness of perception. His younger brother Andrew said something even more profound. He says, those who sing loudest in the kingdom will be those who on earth had the greatest suffering. We pity them now, but then we shall almost envy them. That's why we can classify trouble as a blessing. Second way to suffer well, refrain from fear and worry. This part of the passage comes from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. In Isaiah 8, the prophet is preaching to the frightened people of Israel. And they're frightened because the mighty Assyrian army threatens to overrun the city of Jerusalem. So they're vastly outnumbered. The people of God seem to be in a hopeless situation. It was only a matter of time before their enemies defeated them. It was basically inevitable that they would defeat them. And so Isaiah's message... It probably seemed crazy to them. He said to them, chapter 8, verse 12, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. In other words, don't fear the mighty army you see arrayed against you. They may have more soldiers on their side. You have something they don't. You have the Lord on your side. That was the sum of Isaiah's preaching in Isaiah chapter 8. And the basic message from Isaiah to the Jews is this. You plus the Lord equals much more than your enemies plus anything else. You plus the Lord equals much more than your enemies plus anything they could add to it. So don't be afraid when you feel surrounded. God is with you. Give up your fear. Give up your fright. Give up your worry. And give up this posture of being intimidated 
Rely on the Lord. Don't fear your trouble or even the prospect of trouble. Which actually leads to the next encouragement. Third, regard Christ as Lord. We see that where it says, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. That right response to trouble and persecution is being set up against the response that Peter has just condemned. The response of fear and worry. And what Peter's really saying is, don't fear the trouble headed your way. Don't fear the prospect of suffering that's in front of you. Fear the Lord. Fear the, if you fear the Lord, you've got things in the right order. Again, he's calling back to Isaiah chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 12 of Isaiah, the prophet writes, And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts who you should regard as holy. Here in 1 Peter 3, direct parallel. Have no fear of them. Don't, do not be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord who is holy. The real punch of what Peter is teaching them not only relates to how they respond to trouble, but that Christ but that Christ is Lord. Peter is making a clear and direct statement about the deity of Christ. Therefore, just as the Israelites were to regard the Lord as holy, we are to regard Christ as holy. Therefore, we're, we are to regard him and honor him as Lord. When Christ is Lord and God over all aspects of our lives, we need not fear any opposition. We need not fear anything at all. The real issue for some of you this morning is the lordship of fear versus the lordship of Christ. Those who make Christ Lord need not fear what earthly rulers do to them. It does not exempt us from the worst kind of suffering. We may suffer and our children may suffer with us, but if we set apart Christ as Lord, we can rest well knowing that nothing can touch us that does not first pass through his loving, sovereign hands. This principle offers the only possible explanation for the, for the long line of martyrs in the church who loved Christ more than their own lives. In fact, in this century, more people have died because of their faith in Jesus than all of the previous centuries combined. And those people, before the trouble came, they had settled in their own hearts that only Christ matters. That Christ really is Lord. Ponder those words just for a moment. Only Christ matters. If only Christ matters, he's Lord. You're regarding him as Lord. In light of eternity, could anything in this world matter more than Jesus Christ? If so, you have a different Lord. Since this world is passing away, nothing we do or say, nothing we achieve, nothing we own, no fortune we may amass, no empire that we build, no glittering list of friendships that we're able to attain, none of it matters at all compared to Christ the Lord. Only Christ matters. We need to hear this. We need to repeat this to one another. We need to preach it and teach it to our children. We will never be ready for suffering until we lift up Christ and set him apart as Lord of all.
That is so key in Peter's teaching here. I really think it's the crux of some of this instruction that he's given us. Fourth bit of instruction. Middle of verse 15 there. Readily give a defense. The word for defense is apologia. Probably recognize it. There's a, a discipline within Christian thinking and teaching apologetics. It's def- the defense of the faith. And that word apologia, it can refer to a formal or informal defense. It really just means answer. But in many, many cases, Christians have had to make a formal defense of what they believe. I think of the Apostle Paul. You read the book of Acts and you see Paul continually having to make formal defense of his faith in Christ. I think of Polycarp in the second century. I think of Martin Luther during the Reformation. All brought before legal, formal councils to make a defense. There are some Christians doing this right now in the Arab world. Christians who are standing before magistrates and judges and and having having to defend the fact that they will not recant the gospel and embrace the religion of Islam. Doing so under the threat of not just mild persecution, but, but death. So it has a formal aspect, but, but other times, probably most frequently, Christians have to make an informal defense, which is to say we just have to give an answer. Because somebody you know might ask you, a relative, a friend, a coworker, why do you live the way you live? Why do you conduct yourself the way you do? Why, why do you have these moral views that you have? Why do you honor Christ? Why do you attend church Do you really believe the Bible? And according to verse 15, you are to give them an answer to these questions. And if that seems intimidating to you, notice where the focus of your defense should be. It says you are to give an account for the hope that is in you. So everything we do as Christians, everything we believe our defense stems from our hope. And what is our hope, ultimately? It's, it's our eternal life. It's where we're going to be forevermore. It's heaven. So when people say to us, why, why do you live the way you live? Why, why do you think the way you think? We don't say, oh, because I want my best life now. We don't say that. We don't say, oh, I live this way because it makes me, you know, able to meet so many nice people because there's so many nice people at church and I really like nice people and that's why I go to church. Or we don't say, I, I, I live this way, I think this way because I feel better about myself when I kind of clean up my act a little bit and, and, little, and live a little bit more of a, a straight and narrow kind of life. None of those things is a, is a defense for what we believe at all. The defense for what we believe is that we know there is life after death and that God has prepared in glory, in heaven, a kind of life that is glorious and and so wonderful that the Bible describes it for us as pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. That's what awaits us. Does that not give you hope? Eternal pleasures. That's a hope that we have. Peter's very fixated on sort of eschatology, which is the end of things. The launching of our 
eternal lives into the hereafter where we're in relationship with God and honoring him forever. Pleasures forevermore. And note that Peter emphasizes not only what we say, he emphasizes how we say it. We must be gentle. It's the word for meekness there again. It means we're to be winsome, we're to be kind and, and gracious in, in our dealings with the lost. You, you can't argue people into the kingdom of God. It just doesn't work that way. You can't just spew condescension at them and then say, hey, do you want to accept Jesus? It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't go well. We must be winsome. We must treat people with respect. Don't confuse arguing with answering. And so on a practical level, this just means listening to people, paying attention to people, locking in on details, remembering their names, letting them tell you all about their messy spiritual journey and withholding condemnation. This also implies you have to be in relationship with non-believers. You have to be willing to walk alongside them. I don't think they're to be your closest friends and confidants, but you are to know them and care about them and answer their questions about faith and meaning and maybe even anticipate their questions. But again, our answer is to focus on our hope. Your hope should comprise most of your answer. You know, not complex defenses of a literal six-day creation, whatever that would look like. Not elaborate explanations of the teleological argument for the world's existence. Not extensive knowledge of, of biblical archaeology. You know, th- those are categories. I mean, none of us have scratched the surface of those areas. We could never give a defense as it relates to those complex issues. That's why Peter says your answer And all of you will have this answer. Your answer, your defense, it centers on your hope. Why? Because if you're a Christian, you have hope. And if someone is not a Christian, they don't. And they know they don't. Listen, they can't articulate it, but they would so desperately love to have the hope you have. Remember, Peter is repetitious with this word hope. Paul often uses the word faith. Peter uses the word hope, which hope is just future faith. Hope for the Christian is not wishful thinking. Hope is is the certain outcome for the Christian. We are decided on this. So let me tell you this. I don't care how smart he or she is. If a lost man needs anything, he needs hope. And he may look really pulled together, But if you peel back the layers, he's a hopeless individual. And their life might be a mess, and that mess is really an outflow of the fact that they are living a hopeless existence. Maybe you're here today and you don't have any hope. And you've covered some things up and you've made people believe some good things about you. But really, when it comes down to it, you're not really sure of anything. I want to invite you today. I don't have a complex argument to lay before your feet, but I do have a certain hope that I am forgiven by God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and I will spend forever, eternity, enjoying a relationship with God, basking in the glory of his presence. And I'll do that alongside everyone else who is identified with Jesus Christ.
I would love you. I, I, I would love nothing more for as many people imaginable to join me in that. And if that's you today, you need to pray today that God would forgive you of your sins. You need to repent and believe the gospel and put all your hope in Jesus Christ and what he affords you. The fifth thing, retain a good conscience. Having a good conscience, it says in verse 16, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This means living such a noble life that if people criticize you for the way you live, they're going to have to tell lies to do it. And I think this touches some very down-to-earth practical matters for you, right? How's your integrity? Do you keep your word? Do you speak the truth? Do you do unto others the way you want to be done yourself? Do you refuse to gossip? How do you approach your job? Are you obedient to the law? Do you show compassion to those who are hurting? Are you generous? Are you sharing with those who have need? A good conscience is possible when we know our suffering is in spite of our good behavior, not because of our bad behavior. It's then that our good behavior has a way of of shaming our critics. It, It makes their claims against us very empty. I think Peter injects this here because a a life of consistent integrity is a quiet defense of the Christian life. And that kind of life opens the opportunity for testimony regarding the lordship of Jesus Christ. So in the end of verse 17, it says, if it comes, if the suffering comes, if this persecution comes, it is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. If it's gonna come, Let it be for doing what is right. Charles Spurgeon wrote, take care if the world does hate you, that it hates you without cause. I like that. And so with that, with that final verse there, verse 17, we're right back to where we we started. Now who may harm you is the question that the passage starts with. The world may hate you, but let it hate you because the world's hateful. And you know what? If that's the case, God's going to deal with it. You don't have to deal with it. You will one day receive blessing because you identify with Christ. The persecutor, he will receive his judgment because he mocks Christ. I pray you identify with Christ today. In his death, his burial, his resurrection, and even his suffering for righteousness sake. That really marks us out as exiles, as sojourners, strangers in this land. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book, First Peter. It seems to have just such significant application to where we find ourselves in the world today. And we could drill down to dozens and dozens of contemporary issues that that this book speaks directly toward. So I pray as we encounter these things, as we, as we live our lives as exiles in this world, God, we would, we would look to the encouragements found here. And Lord, we're not asking for persecution, but we're realizing through looking at this text that we're certainly not exempt from it. And so we need grace in that day. If that comes, we, we need to look to these five things. We need to see it as a blessing. 
We need to be ready for a defense. We need to retain a good conscience. We need to regard Christ as holy. Lord, keep us from fear. Guard us from anxiety. Give us just a rich faith in the Lord Jesus to where each of us can say only Christ matters. He really is Lord. And our life is in his hands. Lord, thank you for this time together. If there's anyone here that does not know you, has not put their faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that they would do that today. Even as we pray, even as they drive home, God, draw them unto yourself by your Spirit's quickening power. It's in Christ's name we pray these things.